So this last week, um, Maya and I watched a terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> maybe, maybe the worst movie we've ever seen. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, and you may or may not be surprised that it was a Netflix Christmas special <laughs> or, or Christmas movie, um, which narrows it down to like dozens of movies that, that they currently have. But it, it was so bad that about halfway through the movie, one of our kids who usually likes movies like this begged us I mean, begged us to stop watching, and so we did. But as you know, um, we live in a world where so many things are up in the air. We're going through a pandemic with an ending that seems perpetually just out of reach. So many things in politics and in society and in our personal lives remain unresolved, at least for me. I don't know about all of you. So the next night, Maya and I made the intentional decision to finish watching the movie. <laughs> we didn't expect that it would get better. Uh, we didn't believe that we would enjoy it. All we wanted from this movie was to experience its ending, <laughs> right? And it worked. It, it never got better. Um, but finishing the movie, finishing anything, was satisfying, right? It was... It was a good experience, the ending of it at least. <laughs> so, so during Advent, we've been looking at Jesus' awkward family history, and, um, and we're only about a third of the way through. Uh, and on Christmas Eve, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of other things about this, but today, for the sake of experiencing some form of resolution, let's skip to the very end of Jesus' genealogy. How does that sound? Okay, so Matthew... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. There we go. Did it feel good? <laughs> That's the end of the genealogy. Mary, Jesus' mother, is the fifth woman specifically highlighted in Jesus' family history in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we've been talking about patterns and repeated stories all the way through uh, Advent. Uh, we begin with God's generous and inclusive promise to bless all people. But the stories soon fall into patterns of fear and greed that generation after generation bless only a few at the expense of everyone. But then there are these courageous women who break those dysfunctional cycles in rather unorthodox ways. And so they pass on new patterns of courage and hope and justice. They are the ones who pass on God's blessings far and wide to all families, all nations, and all people. But each of these stories also involves scandal of some form or another. So what can we expect of Mary? Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together or knew each other, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So one last scandal in Jesus' family history. In a culture of honor and shame, this is perhaps the worst thing that could happen to Mary and her family. As, as Presbyterians, we, we have a long history of doing things decently and in order, which by and large is a very positive uh, value and, and sort of cultural uh, value, I guess. Uh, but here, God is most certainly not Presbyterian. Uh, 
because Mary isn't supposed to be pregnant yet, right? She's just pledged to be married to Joseph. And, and we saw in the story of Tamar at the very beginning how this type of situation almost got her killed. It's not unreasonable to think that Joseph could respond just like Judah, who immediately tried to condemn Tamar to death. So what's going to happen to Mary? Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful. So just a, a, a quick clarification. So she's pledged to be married to him. So there's two ceremonies in ancient Jewish weddings. There's the ceremony where you're betrothed to the person you're marrying, and then about a year later, then you have another ceremony where you're married. But once you're betrothed or once you're, you're committed to the relationship, you're officially legally married, okay? So that, that's sort of how this is working. So, um, so where was I? Oh, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Okay, so good for Joseph that he didn't respond like Judah, like we've made some progress in the hundreds of years between Judah and Joseph. But this doesn't mean that he's really breaking any new ground here. We've seen again and again how fearful men view women as dangerous. And when they see women as a threat to their own well-being, the pattern is, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister, right? And then Abraham a second time, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And then Isaac, a whole generation later, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Like each of these stories, Joseph is looking for a way to say, She's not my wife, right? Joseph is faithful to the religious law, so we're told. And since Mary's experience and story don't fit conventional morality, he can't be faithful to both God and Mary? Is that what, what's happening here? Because he loves God, he can't love Mary? Why, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep hurting and wounding and rejecting people in the name of God? Because we're afraid. Of course, we're afraid. There's so many things to be afraid of. We are afraid of what we can't control. So many times we just want a God who will control things for us. We just want a God who will control other people for us, right? Abraham was afraid of Pharaoh. Isaac was afraid of a king. And Joseph is afraid of God. And just because it's God doesn't mean that this dysfunctional pattern of fear is good or any better. This is not the kind of humble reverence for God that is the beginning of wisdom. This is a fear of being punished or rejected by God or, or the people who claim to speak for God. But fear, specifically fear of God, as a motivating factor for how to live well, doesn't actually work. I, I don't know. <laughs> Has it worked for any, any of us? I, I mean, not in the long run, at least. As we see here, it leads to a definition of loving God that is not eternally joined together with loving one another. Like they're divided somehow. 
Joseph here feels like he must choose between being faithful to God and faithful to his wife. Why, why do we keep doing this? Being afraid of God in this way doesn't seem to change the dysfunctional patterns happening in these stories. Like Sarah and Rebecca and Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth, Mary is about to be put in harm's way because Joseph is afraid and because of a belief that God's blessings cannot be extended to those who don't conform to some narrow definition of normal. And, I mean, Mary's story obviously does not conform to any definition of normal, right? This week, one of our kids, one of our kids has a, a, a Bible app on, her, on, on their phone, um, and it gives them different sort of inspirational Bible verses every day. So this week, while I was driving them to school, I heard from the back of, of the van, oh, well, that's different. <laughs> What's different? Uh, this Bible verse, this, this inspirational Bible verse was beautifully laid out with a, a blue sky fading into a brilliant red, with the sun setting behind snow-capped mountains. I mean, can you picture this? Like those inspirational posters or, or, or anything that you see basically on social media. With a, with a Bible verse in the center which said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. <laughs> uh, maybe you should get a new Bible verse or a new Bible app. But it's interesting. Why is there something in our, our spiritual psyche as human beings that, that says, this verse taken out of context is inspiring. I'm not even sure in context how inspiring it is. But unhealthy spirituality of all kinds will always play upon fear and upon shame. It'll always play upon our fear and our shame to make us behave according to some established set of rules, some, some, some form of conventional morality. But conventional morality and, and fearful religion rarely have room for the people or the stories that don't fit our narrow definitions of normal. And if we live long enough, there, we will all experience something that doesn't fit into those definitions. This is why as we prepare for Christmas, the Gospel of Matthew wants us to notice these people in Jesus' family history, these women specifically who blow conventional morality out of the water. They enter into and then break these dysfunctional patterns. Then they create new traditions, new ways of living guided by a more generous, a more just, and a more inclusive faith in God. So, Verse 20, after Joseph had considered this, considered saying, she's not my wife, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their Sins. He will rescue us from these dysfunctional uh, patterns of fear and injustice. He will rescue us from guilt and from shame and from hopelessness. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin or the young woman will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, God with us when our experiences and our stories are widely understood and accepted. But most importantly, what Mary passes on is God with all of us who, like her, have experiences and stories that are not widely understood, that are not widely accepted. God with all of us who don't always fit those narrow definitions of normal. God with us to bless all families. God with us to bless all nations. God with us to bless all people. Please pray with me. Jesus, as we come into this time of Christmas, we pray that that we would encounter and that we would reflect your generous and inclusive love and welcome. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.